1: It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com that's leadership p h a l a n x com and now on to today's show all right folks hello and welcome to this episode of the responsible leadership podcast uh, this time i am really excited to chat with my guest dr seth silver Uh, Seth, thanks for being with us.
0: My pleasure. Looking forward to this.
1: Yeah. So listeners, what you need to know about uh, Seth Silver is he is the principal of Silver Consulting, Inc., and has worked with hundreds of diverse clients on leadership, culture change, employee engagement, and workplace success. He's also an associate professor of human resource development at St. John Fisher College and the Rochester Institute of Technology. He's written a great book with his co author, Timothy Friends, Dr. Timothy Friends, uh, titled Meaningful Partnership at Work How the Workplace Covenant Ensures Mutual Accountability and Success Between Leaders and Teens. Uh, Dr. Silver, thanks for being with us today and, and having this conversation that we're getting ready to get into. And I really want to start off with that question. I start off all of my guests. When you hear the words responsible leadership, what do those mean to you?
0: Responsible leadership. Well, to tie it into concepts that I think we're going to get into with the book, I think one of the most important elements of a responsible leader is to be supportive, to understand what support looks like to his or her team. Uh, With kind of my academic hat on, I'd also say responsible leadership is moving in a positive direction a constructive morally correct direction i mean we can think of bad leaders through history they may have been effective they had followers they achieved bad ends i would consider them not to be responsible leaders Um, so i think responsible leaders pursue good ends which uh you know in most workplaces means we are achieving our mission we are achieving our goals we are making profit we are growing and developing our people Um, But I would add to that with kind of uh, the thought of the book uh, is this whole notion of support and being uh, a bedrock of support for one's team, uh, again, in particular, as they define it. It means being responsive. It means being an advocate. It means providing the tools and resources necessary to succeed. It means providing encouragement. It means co-developing a vision and helping the group move in that direction. It means enabling others to act and empowering them. Uh, there's a lot of things that go into that, but um, that's that's my quick take on responsible leadership.
1: No, I, I love that. And I think that you're right. That theme does kind of run through the book. Um, and let me start off there, right? Because uh, meaningful partnership, that is... Uh, that, that's an interesting topic it's a very interesting Ooh. title like right off the bat meaningful partnership at work like that that sucks me in as somebody oh, good. Uh, i'm
0: delighted will, to hear you say that that's good <laughs> no i love it
1: because you know my, my listeners though with my background in the marine corps and all that that's what we're all about was was right. partnerships teamwork uh, relying on one another why did you uh, and Tim decide to focus on those words, meaningful partnership?
0: So thanks for that as a first question. So here's something that Tim and I do whenever we're working uh, with a group and we're, we're going through this process, this meaningful partnership process. One of the first things we do as an intentional icebreaker is we divide the group in half, and half the group is reflecting on the best partnership that they've ever had. And by partnership, we mean broadly, that could be a boss, that could be colleagues and peers and teammates, it could be an important third party who was outside of the organization, but with whom they had to work very closely and they were dependent upon that person or party. And then the other half of the group works on the worst partnerships. And you can imagine what these two flip chart lists look like, right? I mean, the worst partnerships, um, you know, didn't have our back, didn't have my back, uh, took credit. Uh, didn't have the same goals, um, mean-spirited, egotistical. Didn't listen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the best partnership list almost always has things like supported me, encouraged me, taught me, uh, had my back, uh, enjoyed small wins, uh, we laughed together, uh, helped me get to the next level, uh, believed in me, trusted, um, similar goals, etc. And we then ask a bunch of second-level questions, which are. Things like, when you think about those best partnerships, did they have an impact on your career? Did they help you see yourself in a new light that you hadn't seen yourself before? Did they take you to the next level? And invariably, the answer is yes. And it occurred to us a couple things. One is that those exceptional partnerships that we've had in our career, most people have had at least one or two, and, and hopefully more. And unfortunately, many people have terrible partnerships. Um, is that we can all relate to how that particular work relationship was special? It did something I'll call it transformative. We didn't just endure it the way we did with our worst partnerships, but it was transformative to us, and as I say, helped us become better, stronger, smarter, more effective, more more capable, etc. And so that was one thought going through our head as we were wrestling with the title. The second. Um, sort of coincidental piece of of information was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice, uh, died during the time that we were finishing the book and working on the title. And by the way, just an FYI, sometimes you go back and change the title of your book. (laughs) For anyone who's written a book in your audience, uh, you know you start off with a working title and quite often ends up changing. So she had just died and the tributes were coming in and you know all the eulogies and uh, testimonials and things, all the, the tributes I guess is the right word. And the word meaningful kept coming up that Ruth Bader Ginsburg lived a meaningful life. She of course dedicated her working life to uh, women's rights and the advancement of women in society, uh, especially in the law. And we thought about that, and we thought, okay, well, you know, they keep using this word meaningful. What does it mean? Well, she had impact. There was legacy. It went above and beyond. There was significance. And it occurred to Tim and me that um, this is what we think can happen with a key partnership at work. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you had a meaningful partnership that had legacy, had impact, went above and beyond, had significance, took you to the next level, was transformative? so we realized quickly that it is that mindset of partnership that's really the goal and that's why we we titled it um you know the the subtext the subtitle the how the workplace covenant ensures mutual accountability and success between leaders and teams kind of long-winded but the workplace covenant is the is the tool it's it's really the how and the book gets into that a lot and i'm sure you and i'll talk about it in a minute but its goal also is this notion of mutual accountability and mutual success that that it can't be a one way street. That it really has to be a two way street, or it's not going to be enduring. So that's a long winded answer to your question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's great, and and you kind of mentioned it there. So uh, if I understand right, you mentioned the the title piece there. So uh, workplace covenant was kind of the the first working title for the book.
0: It, it was because um, frankly, that's that's the. Uh, the moniker that I had always used for the process. And, and indeed, that that has still, can, can I tell a story? Because I, I think. Please I think do. Story, I love uh, stories. Th- yeah, I think uh, I call it the origin story. And I like to joke with groups that I don't mean anything about uh, Genesis or uh, Charles Darwin. But this is the origin story of really the concept behind the book. And, you know, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, I worked at the Xerox Corporation in the 1990s. I was here in upstate New York, and I was manager of organization development, and I was in a 5,000-person engineering division. And about half of that 5,000 group was in Rochester, and the other 5,000 were in California. So during that couple-year period, I was going back and forth a lot. And I got to do really fun things. I got to do leadership training, and customer service training, and coaching, Uh, And empowerment training and and all kinds of things to help the engineers be more effective in their teams and one of the things I got to do was team building and In those days in that company team building was real serious. This wasn't just let's go climb ropes or have food together This was we're gonna go off-site. We're gonna go to a golf club or a hotel. We're gonna work You know, we're gonna be there from 8 in the morning till 5 30 p.m And we're gonna learn and do things to really help us become more effective. So team building was serious Uh, And I had my master's degree in industrial relations from a fancy school, and so I was the one facilitating it. And I would meet with the manager, usually about two weeks ahead of time, and I would say, hey, Mr. or Ms. Manager, we're going off-site, and we're going to have a whole day, and you know, I want this to be relevant. I want this to be helpful. I want you and your team to benefit. So tell me what your team is like and what you're challenged with and what's going well and not well. Um, you know, what does your group have to learn? And, and uh, you know, do they need to know more about trust or professional communication or whatever? And I would always ask, how is the relationship with your team? And invariably, the answer I got was, I wish. <laughs> the manager would start off with, you know, they're an okay team. They're pretty good. You know, they've got strengths and weaknesses, but I wish. And then would come this 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 lengthy list of things that the man, I wish they would be more prepared for ops meetings. I wish they wouldn't complain about 7 a.m. sunrise meetings every week. I wish they would respond to my emails faster. I wish they wouldn't have side conversations during our team meetings. I wish they would solve problems amongst themselves without bugging me. I wish, I wish, I wish. And I would write all this stuff down. And then usually the same day or next day, I would meet with the team without the manager for obvious reasons, just to have them be a bit more relaxed. And I would ask the team in a focus group, you know, what's going on, strengths and weaknesses, what do you want to get out of this team building, what would be useful to you? And I would ask, how's the relationship with your boss? And guess what they said? (laughs) Yeah, he's okay. Not the best manager we've ever had. He's well-intended, but we wish. And then came the team's wish list. And the the team would say things like, well, we wish he recognized that we come for these damn sunrise meetings at 7 a.m. And we wish he would recognize or she would recognize our extra effort. And we wish... He or she understood that we have a kid who's got dance recitals at 3 p.m. every Friday and I have to leave early. We wish the manager would fill the empty position because the extra work is killing us without those two slots filled. Blah, blah, blah. And it occurred to me, you know, don't these people talk to each other? I mean, these are all reasonable wishes. None of these are ridiculous wishes. They're all, you know, work appropriate. Um, But it seems like they just had never communicated them. So, of course, that led to team building exercises where they would share expectations. And and initially, I called it a workplace covenant because I had both sides coming up with lists of what do they expect from the other in order to work effectively. But the process got refined. Uh, I ended up leaving that company and, and doing individual consulting. And I met Tim Franz at, at St. John Fisher College. We were colleagues. He was my boss at one point. And we've done a lot of research and consulting together, and we wrote a book together. And probably from 2003, 2004 on the process got refined and uh, to the point where it's now described in the book, but it was more than just sharing expectations. I realized, we realized you had to share obligations first. You have to share what you owe because it puts you in a service mindset. I mean, you're, you're familiar with leadership. Your audience is probably somewhat familiar with concepts and leadership. It puts you in a servant leader model, right? If you think first about what do I owe my key partner you start to think about, well, what do they need from me? And, and that's a good place to start. Then the second list you think about is, well, what do I need from them? So you start with what you owe, then you go to what you want. And the context became in order to feel supported and be successful. And I just wanna come back to the, that those two sentences because you asked me at the beginning about responsible leadership. A- and let me you know just highlight it with a highlighter verbally here. Um, The exchange of obligations and expectations, it is around the context of what do I owe you, Earl, so that you will feel supported by me and you can be successful in the role or the work that you're doing, that we're doing together. And similarly, you would put two lists together. What do you owe Seth so that you think Seth will feel supported and be successful? And what do you expect from Seth? So this notion of support and success in my view, in my experience, uh, the work we've done and really the, the uh, underpinning, the philosophical and leadership literature evidence-based uh, position in the book is support and enablement of success. So hope that made sense.
1: Yeah, no, it, it <laughs> does. And as I'm, I'm listening to that story there, I'm, I'm over here uh, putting my Southerner hat on yelling preach in my mind because... Uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, it it is. And this is what I love. Again, uh, my listeners have heard me say this a bunch of times on here, but this is what I love about getting uh, to interview folks who have different experiences, different, uh, completely different, uh, you know, job backgrounds than what I'm used to. And what a lot of my listeners, a lot of my listeners are veteran entrepreneurs and and that sort of things, and even uh, C-suite folks with a veteran background. Uh, but what you're saying there, I think a lot uh, does resonate with a lot of my uh, listeners, because these are things that knowing history and why I like to talk about history on this show. Uh, these things that you're talking about are things that, that we were certainly taught as part of Marine Corps leadership. And they go back uh, through history from, from Sun Tzu to Miyamoto Musashi to Carl von Klausowitz mm-hmm. to all these these great military strate- strategic leaders because they knew all of these same things right here. Um, always share, you know, in the Marine Corps, our uh, two primary uh, missions were mission accomplishment and troop welfare, right? Mm -hmm, And they mm -hmm, weren't one mm -hmm. and two, they were one and 1A, right? Because we had to know what the mission was, but we also had to know how to take care of our troops and provide them with those necessities that you were talking about to get the mission done. And a bad leader would focus on one or not both. And, you know, yes, people always yes, look at yes. I me mean, sideways when I say, well, how can uh, how, how can true welfare be a bad leader? Well, you can you can focus on the people too much. It doesn't make you a bad person, but you don't get anything done with the people. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. 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 You you can be too uh, exactly right, focused on the feelings or, or, or that sort of thing. I, I want to come back and respond to something that you're saying. Um, and, and you're analogizing this, or or making the connection to the military, w- which is absolutely true. I mean, troop welfare and achievement of mission. I think there's a critical difference. It's not easy to just quit the military. <laughs> uh, but in the workplace, and I don't say that frivolously. It's just just a yeah. reality. Of once you sign up, you sign up. Uh, but in the workplace, people quit, particularly now. We have this interesting, you know, the Great Resignation, they're calling it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to ask you a question now, or also, so you know, Go your thought. It what do you hear what are you hearing about the reasons people are leaving just you know throw out five or six reasons that you've heard in the last 6 months about why people leave a job oh well, what i what i
1: hear or what mm-hmm. i think is going on uh both okay so, so what I hear is a lot of the standard kind of boilerplate. oh, people got free money; they don't want to work anymore. They're lazy. Why okay, would people th- not want that to stuff?
0: Work? Yeah, not that stuff. But the, the the real reasons why people are saying they've left a job and they're going to another one.
1: Yeah. So for me, it boils down to when when I listen to people tell me why they're leaving jobs, they're they're in harsh work environments. They're working for people who don't necessarily care about them. Uh, they're working for uh, what they believe. Their, their salary is less than what they provide to the corporation uh, yep. and, and all those types of things that, that show that they're not as valued as they, they should be. And they know they have options now with the age that we live in and they're exercising those options.
0: So let me take what you've said and create a, uh, an image. And the image is a tree and it's the tree of support. And each branch is a way in which maybe a person does not feel supported. One branch is pay. They don't feel they're getting the pay they need, so they want to leave. Another branch is how I'm treated. I'm treated with disrespect and incivility. So that's the disrespect and incivility branch. Another one is there's no growth opportunity here. Ten people would have to die before I move up, so I'm I'm never going to get beyond the position I'm in. So there's no growth. That's another branch. Another branch might be... uh, professional development There's no way to learn, there's no way to grow. Um, another one might be, you know, teammates who are all out for themselves, etc. Each of these branches is, is a way in which people don't feel support. It all comes down to this umbrella, though, um, which, and it's interesting, we touch on it in the book, but since Tim and I have been talking about the book, we realize just how much more important this notion of support is. And I think everyone defines support differently. You know, a 24-year-old at a certain stage of life might be interested in X or Y, and a 55-year-old who quits a job might be interested in A or B. But it's both around support. Do they feel supported by their manager and the organization? And they'll state different reasons in the exit interview. Like I said, it could be pay, it could be growth, it could be uh, civility, it could be, you know, opportunity to succeed. Uh, you know, they're not given the tools, but they're expected to do a whole bunch, and, and they feel they just can't can never get close to what's expected of them. And so they leave out of frustration. And in the book, uh, we actually talk about this. We talk about the, the four Ds, the dreaded four Ds. And, uh, you know, sort of tongue in cheek when we came up with that term because uh, it's a bit of an homage to the Princess Bride. I don't know if you're a fan of that movie. But oh, yeah, yeah uh, the 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 um, uh, dreaded pirate Roberts in the forest of despair. Anyway, the four yep. Ds are Um, dissatisfaction, disengagement, despair, and departure. And we feel that people go through these four stages somewhat sequentially. Now, maybe some people go through it in a matter of weeks, others might take a year or two. But when they're mistreated, they're not getting paid, they're not getting respected, they're not able to achieve any of those lack of support things, they get uh, to the state of dissatisfaction. Uh, and if that's not addressed within, you know, a timely way, then they get to disengagement. Which, you know, I mean, a lot of HR people will tell you engagement is is this real big concept, and they measure it, and it has to do with whether you're fully present at work and whether you're passively looking for something else, and just, you know, whether you're putting your heart into your job or not. If you're disengaged, obviously you're checked out. Um, despair is that feeling of, oh my God, I'm wasting my life. You know, my boss will never change. My teammates will never be nicer this organization will never have a better culture. You know, I need to get out of here now, you know that feeling of despair slash depression. And then that leads to departure. And I think, you, know, you mentioned the people that you know uh, and the reasons they've given, I, I think they've gone through those four, those four stages pretty quickly. Um, and that's one of the reasons we wrote the book, um, you know, because we, we saw this and we saw it with employees. I mean, employees will often cite that their managers, you know, the biggest reason they leave I think 70% of all voluntary um, terminations, you know, resignations are having to do with the relationship between an employee and his or her manager. Um, But the thing I've learned in 24 years of consulting is that managers get pissed off. (laughs) Managers, if you talk to certain managers, they'll say, well, geez, you know, I'm, you know, my team is checking out at four or five, either, you know, on the on the computer or literally physically in the workplace. But I'm, I'm expected to keep working till 10 to, you know, get ready for the next day. You know, I, I feel abandoned. I don't feel they have my back. I don't think they support me. So it's really a two-way street of frustration. And of course, managers are people, and they too have bosses. So, um, you know, that's kind of why we wrote the book, is, is we were seeing the four Ds. We were seeing the great resignation. We were seeing the effects of COVID, you know, alienation, isolation, anxiety, a lot of anxiety during that period, especially when people were locked at home. And... Um, uh, we think meaningful partnership provides something of, you know, for, for forgive the, forgive the analogy, but it provides something of a vaccine, you know, to the, to the ailment of the four D's.
1: Yeah, no, I, I love that. And just to kind of, you know, touch on, on one piece there you said earlier, um, you know, that I, I always like to debunk some of the military myths when they come up on here. And, and you mentioned, you know, that it's hard to quit the military. Uh, it's not that hard. I mean, pe- people do it all the time, and, and they may not. It, it, it's hard to leave the military, but, but we, uh, we love acronyms. You know, we, we, we say they're the, QUIP, right? They quit in place. And that's what oh. we talk about uh, with, with disengagement, right, is, is right. W- when these same things aren't happening in a military leadership environment, environment you have Marines, airmen, uh, sailors, soldiers that that quit in place. They're still there, they'll still show up. They're doing the bare minimum to keep from being put in the brig. They're doing the bare minimum uh you know to keep from, from getting in trouble. But that's it, right? They're they're wow. they're not being that active, engaged, uh in a Marines we call gung-ho motivated Marine that that we're looking for. Right. Uh so so I mean, you know, it happens in and Um, You know, that's why, again, this resonates so much, so much with me is, is every leader, right? Some of these things are just universal and, and and people want to be led uh, well, right? Um, I think it was Simon Sinek. He says, nobody ever wakes up saying, man, I hope I managed well today right (laughs) they say you know i hope i'm led well right because we understand that difference between leadership and and management at an extent but but yeah these same things hold up true for for my you know active military folks that that are listening here you know what dr silver is saying here is a hundred percent on point even for your troops don't think they can't quit because you've seen it happen
0: before yeah yeah Um, we like to say tim and i that the book is actually how shall I phrase this? It's, it's not a leader. If you look at the typical leadership book, let me back up. If you look at the typical leadership book by, you know, any number of the famous authors out there in some variation, it's usually like, here's a list of 48 things you need to do to be a great leader. You know, here's the checklist. You should do this. You should do this. You should do this. You should do this. And, and I'm kind of the leadership guy. And I actually did a doctoral dissertation on leadership. So I can totally relate to that. And, you know, I've studied and researched in leadership and uh, you know, checklists and recommendation lists and prescriptions really are, are kind of the norm my colleague and co-author Tim is is a teams guy he's a team expert and devoted his career to effective teams and he'll tell you a lot of the teamwork books are similar they're prescriptive and they say here are you know 38 things that you need to do as a team you need to have a charter you need to have goals you need to have meetings that go like this blah 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 and we like to say that our book meaningful partnership at work is neither a leadership book although it will make managers into better leaders nor is it a teamwork Bible However, it will make any team far more effective and at the risk of using yet another analogy. So um, I've done martial arts for a long time. I'm less active in it now, but I, I, you know, from a small age, I I was doing it and got my black belt. And back in the day, I used to uh, occasionally uh, judge at karate tournaments. And if you can imagine two people who are sparring, doing kumite, you know, punches and kicks. As a judge, you learn quickly, you're trained quickly, to not look at fighter A or fighter B, because if you look at fighter A, you're going to miss all the punches and kicks from fighter B, and if you look at fighter B, you're going to miss the punches and kicks from fighter A. So if you want to judge which punch got in first and award the points correctly, you have to look in between. You have to look at the air in between the two fighters. That's where your eyes are peeled. And then you'll see which kick and which punch gets in first, and you you can judge it correctly. And so we like to say that the book is about the space in between. It's about the space in between the leader and the team. It's about the conversation they should have. So we don't tell the leader, here are the 10 things you need to do to be a better leader. But what we do say is, here's the way you have a conversation with your team. Here, you share your obligations and your expectations. You hear theirs, and you really listen. And you will learn from them how to be a better leader for them. And to the team, we say, you know, we're not going to give you a prescription on how to be a better team. But if you listen to your manager and you listen to his or her list of what he or she owes and what he or she expects and pay attention to it, you will become a better team. Um, so I hope that makes sense. Um, no,
1: it, it absolutely does. And, and I love... I love that approach, right? Because I think that is where too many leadership books, and I agree with you one hundred percent, go off the rails, right? And and you have probably ran into this just as often, probably more than I have, where you'll go in and you'll talk to a leader, you'll work with a leader, and you look on on the bookshelf behind them, and there's every John Maxwell book ever written, or there's every <laughs> you know Simon Sinek book ever written, and they're like, I do these things that they tell me to do, but it's not working, and then I have to have the conversation with them. It's like, look. You're not John Maxwell. That's why. Leadership is not cookbook. Right. You have right. to learn the concepts and learn how to apply them to your team and your style so they're effective. And that takes building a relationship. And my listeners are already saying it in their head right now because I say it on this podcast all the time. Leadership is a relationship. And that's kind of what you're talking about through the book is how to build those partner that partnership, that relationship piece, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, I would I would love it if some of my clients even had the John Maxwell book. I mean, most of the time I'm finding is that people are promoted to middle, even senior management roles, and they haven't had any leadership training. Yep. You know, they were a good engineer, and then they become a chief engineer. They were a good doctor, and now they've become a medical director, or they were a good uh, academic, and now they're a, a chair or a, a dean. I mean, I just finished a, a coaching project with a high-level dean who had has something along the lines of 60 faculty who report to him and 1600 students. And he literally, I'm not joking. It literally has never had a day of leadership training. Yep. Uh, My my
1: listeners right now are probably reciting the research. I'm getting ready to to quote again, but back in 2012, to prove your point, uh, Harvard business review published a study. It's a global study. I want to say they had somewhere 12, ish thousand respondents across a bunch of different business sectors across the globe and two of the questions in the survey uh, that the hbr article uh, focused on was what was the average or what was the age you were promoted into a leadership role what was the age that you received your first formal uh, leadership management training mm-hmm. and when they looked at the data and averaged it out the the first the age that they were promoted was somewhere in the early 30s okay. and the age they got their first
0: training was somewhere in the early 40s so yeah.
1: there's wow 10 years decade. 10 years yep. of
0: mistakes and trial and error right yeah right exactly. and, that, and that doesn't even get into 360 feedback which which i am generally a fan of particularly if it's followed up by coaching Yes. So it it you know begs the whole question of feedback and and I guess that's another thing I like about our book is that once you've created these covenants and I, I want to hasten quickly around the word covenant by the way because we yes, have please. a couple paragraphs on it. Um it's not a religious term. Uh we struggled with that word too by the way. Um th- the word covenant for us means means a binding obligation. It it means obligatory weight. Uh we didn't want to use the word workplace commitment or workplace promise or you know, that kind of thing, because commitments and promises are broken all the time. Uh, I jokingly say they're broken like twigs in the forest. You know, they, pe- people break home promises. They break work promises. We wanted this to be a bit stronger. We wanted it to have more obligatory weight. So we use the word covenant, but it's it's not a religious thing. But it, it does mean an honor-bound set of, of, you know, commitments, I guess, is that we make to each other as partners. So the word covenant now out of the way. But um, so... We, we have this workplace covenant, and then it's reviewed. Uh, it should be reviewed informally um, uh, as the occasion comes up. I, I think when a manager and a team create these workplace covenants to each other, um, you know clearly the manager should reflect on them, and the team should reflect on theirs. And as opportunities arise, give each other informal feedback. But our process includes that every two or three months, you actually make some time for it at a team meeting and the first time or two it takes a little longer it takes probably close to an hour Uh, but we've had many clients who can actually knock it out in about 10 minutes (laughs) Um, but it's just going through the items on the covenant and saying you know hey boss we think you're doing well here 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 and here but of the 10 items on your workplace covenant to us of the 10 items two of them we think you could improve In the last three months, you know, it hasn't been so consistent. And the manager pulls out the team covenant and says, okay, you guys, you know, you signed up for these 10 things and, you know, I think seven of them are going really well, but here's three I'd like you to pay a little more attention to. And the process also includes self-assessment. I actually should mention that the self-assessment comes first. So a manager rates him or herself first. The manager should go through his or her items and say, okay, I think I'm doing okay here, 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 and here, but here's two where I know I can do better. And then the team gives the manager feedback. And it's interesting always to compare, by the way, the feedback the manager gives him or herself to the feedback the team gives to the manager. They don't have to be exact, but it's a good reality check for the manager. Because if the manager goes through his or her covenant and gives himself checks, 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 in other words, oh, I'm doing all 10 things wonderfully. And the team comes back and says, well, actually, you're doing six things wonderfully, but four you could use a bit of improvement on. That's an interesting message for the manager. Or conversely, the manager might say, hey, I think I'm doing, you know, seven of these, but I think I could do three better. And the team says, no, actually, boss, you're doing pretty good. We gave you checks on all 10. And that tells you the boss is a bit hard on him or herself. And, um, you know, that shows some humility, which, as you know, in leadership is a good thing to have. Right. So, um, yeah, we haven't talked about ERTAP. Do you want to hear about ERTAP? Or- uh, yeah,
1: 100%. <laughs> uh, but before we get there, though, I just I want to... Uh, uh, yeah, I just want to reinforce what what you just said there, Seth. Because uh, I want my listeners to realize that that this is reality, right? I mean, what what Seth just was talking about there, I've experienced, uh, right? It, and, and I'm sure many of you have too. But I want you to really focus on that last piece he said. Is is that Going in, when, when you go into an organization that has core values and things like that, that are hung up on the wall, th- those aren't just wall art, right? They're they're an obligation to one another, how you want to interact and, and how you want to be treated and how you should treat each other. Uh, these covenants, is, as they call them. And that was another thing that really sucked me in there. Uh, but I just want you to like rewind that piece and, and listen to that again as you're going through that process, because it is critical. Okay. Ur-tale. well
0: uh, yeah well actually just before to, to build on what you're saying Earl so the whole in fact it's one of the quotes in the book you can't expect what you don't inspect I think yep. one of the quality uh, you know Deming may have said something like that but it's true right you can't expect what you don't inspect so it's nice to have these values but if you don't from time to time reflect on them and even rate yourself on them uh, they don't mean anything so so it is with these workplace covenants we develop them and then every two to three months we actually rate them and in particular, the process that we've outlined in the book is you rate yourself, because self-feedback is important, and it should always come first. And then you rate your partner, um, with with attention to care and and helpful feedback, not not mean-spirited criticism, of course. And the other thing is, and I just want to emphasize this point, is that in these reviews, it's not just about hey, you know, hey boss, you know, of the ten things you're doing, eight great, but here's two where you could pay. It. Pay more attention. It's, hey boss, here are eight things you're doing really great. Thank you for doing these eight things great. We appreciate it. You're doing great in these areas. It's it's also a punctuated opportunity to give each other praise and compliments and encouragement. Um, So the process forces that too. because sometimes in the, in the heat of a normal workday with so many things going on and fires to put out, you, you don't have time. It's too bad, but it's true. You don't have time to pay people the compliment or acknowledge or thank or encourage. And by having these formal reviews every couple months, you you create that space where people can not only provide each other with helpful feedback so that they can be a better partner, but you also have the opportunity to thank them and praise them. Okay, ERTAP. ERTAP is the model. You know, Tim's the organizational psychologist. I'm the guy with a doctorate in leadership and education. So, you know, we had to have our model in there somewhere. And um, we believe that, let me use another analogy here. I'm getting to be the king of analogies, but the soil in which meaningful partnership grows. If meaningful partnership is the crop, the soil in which it grows in any One who plants things will tell you, you need good soil to grow good crops. The soil is ERTAP and it stands for empathy, respect, trust, and alignment. And then of course partnership, which we elevate to meaningful partnership. So we believe that if you're gonna have a meaningful partnership, a partnership that's characterized by enhanced connection, cohesion, coordination, and collaboration, the four C's by the way, Um, It has to have empathy. There's got to be mutual empathy. Everything starts with empathy. I I love the Stephen Covey phrase, uh, empathy leads to synergy. So you got to have some empathy for where the other side's coming from, what they think is important. And actually the exchange of obligations and expectations in the covenant session is the start of that. Because when you share with me, let's say we're, we're, we're close working partners and as two individuals who are gonna be working really closely together, we create a workplace covenant. So as I hear from you what you owe me and what you expect from me, that's a whole window into how you think. All of a sudden now, when I look at your obligation to me list, I get a sense of, okay, here's what he thinks is important for me to feel supported and be successful. And oh gosh darn, he's 90% right. And here's what he expects from me in order for him to feel supported and be successful. So now I know his hot buttons. So it, it increases empathy, right? So it, we believe meaningful partnership starts with empathy as behaviors and covenants are adhered to over time. Respect goes up, Um, and similarly so does trust, you know, the whole trust bank account thing. So respect and trust are earned, and they're earned, you know, as someone is competent and confident and adheres to the promises they've made. And then uh, I think you mentioned before we started recording about the two in a canoe analogy, and, and that's how we define alignment. Um, we think alignment is an underused but incredibly important concept in the workplace and what you want meaningful partners to be is aligned and By that we mean they're on the same page. They have the same sets of goals. They agree on the methods and the processes um, They understand they are mutually accountable for the success of whatever it is they're doing and our metaphor is two in a canoe and um you know, if you've ever been in a canoe and you know how to paddle a canoe and the person you're paddling with doesn't, <laughs> and I'm hoping you're, some of your leaders can relate to that. But it's a kind of a frustrating experience because what happens is, and no disrespect to my wife, but she didn't grow up with canoeing. So whenever I get in the canoe with her, <laughs> you know, we often sort of go in circles for a while or we head toward the, the shore or the rocks or something before I have to, you know, kind of steer us out of it. There's a difference between canoeing with someone who knows what they're doing and what someone who doesn't. And if you canoe with someone who's, you know, good at it, you're literally stroking at the same time. You're breathing in, in coordination with each other. The person in the back is doing the steering. The person in the front is doing a little bit more, you know, stroking and uh, it's just a great feeling, right? You're just, you know, gliding through the water seamlessly. Um, and, and that's a good analogy I think for, for uh, alignment. So meaningful partners should be aligned. And uh, so, hence our model, E-R-T-A-P, empathy, respect, trust, alignment, and partnership.
1: Yeah, no, again, and, and when I saw that, I really, I love the fact that you lead with empathy, because again, uh, that is the one thing that a lot of people discount as, as a piece of military leadership, is is love, empathy, you know, words like that. And, and that is a huge piece of it. And, you know, that carries over into into the civilian world with with a lot of of yeah. military leaders because you know they, they know again we talk about troop welfare and all that kind of good stuff but you know that that care and concern and and I know you quoted uh, Covey but uh, you know I love uh, Dr. Brene Brown and I like the mm-hmm, way she put mm-hmm. it uh, very succinctly is people give a damn if you give a damn and and that's that's really all it takes right it's just <laughs> right. showing. That that you care, you care enough to have that conversation. You care enough that when the person gets in the canoe and they don't know how to row, uh, you don't just row around in circles all day. You take some time and stop and help them learn how to row. Those sorts of things, right?
0: Right, right. Oh, that's interesting about Brene. I had not heard that quote from her. Uh, people, you say people. Uh Give a damn if you give a damn. It's a bit of a paraphrase of the famous Dale Carnegie line, you know, uh, how to win friends and influence people. And he famously said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. Um, But the the story
1: behind her quote real quick was she used that. uh, She was talking to a bunch of police officers and she used the Dale Carnegie quote and she said, I could tell it didn't land. So she says, let me put it in a way you'll understand. People uh, give a damn if you give a damn and it yeah. clicked
0: oh that click okay interesting all right for that audience yeah. I, I will say you know and, and at the risk of uh now sort of straying into societal commentary which i realize our our podcast is not about but i you know what's missing in the world is empathy isn't it what's yes. missing what's missing between parents and children what's missing within communities what's missing uh from our politicians and certainly you know left side right side is is a heightened sense of empathy for each other and I think that's the root of, um, actually there's, there's two roots. So let me broaden it. I think it's lack of empathy. And I also think it's control issues. Um, yep. you know, in the church at some point, uh, at some point, someone said, you know, money's the root of all evil, which I totally do not believe control is the root of all evil. I think control issues are the problems between abusive spouses, between abusive parents, between abusive workplaces, between abusive countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, control issues and and coupled with lack of empathy. So, uh, I
1: that's. agree with you hundred hundred um, percent. I I like the way um, uh, Dave Ramsey talked about that the money root of all evil. He says it's 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 actually money is at the root of all evil. He says if you're uh, a he goes money's just a magnifier. If you're a kind gentle soul that wants to take care of people without money, you're just going to be kinder gentler and take care of more people with money. Uh, if you're a jerk that hates people and just wants to be mean without money, you're just going to be a bigger jerk that hurts more people when you have money. Yeah, uh, It has no bearing on who you are, just how much of an impact you can have. Right. Um, so no, I love it. And I love the conversation here, uh, Seth. And, and I feel like, again, going through the book, I mean, we didn't even really touch. I mean, we, we touched on a lot of the book, but there's still a lot left here. Um, and I really think uh, this is a, a great book. Uh, You know, again, for folks who may have lost track of what we were talking about here because we had some great conversation, meaningful partnership at work, how the workplace covenant ensures mutually accountable, ensures mutual accountability and success between leaders and teams. Um, And and Seth, we've talked about a lot of great stuff on here. Uh, We're just over about 40 minutes or so. Uh, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you want to uh, leave listeners with before we get out of here?
0: Yeah, I, I think maybe it's, it's literally kind of the two-minute summary of the book. So I, I think we spent a lot of time on the three big concepts, right? The, the goal is meaningful partnership, a mindset of meaningful partnership where the manager sees him or herself that their role is to support and enable their team to success, and the team views its role as supporting and enabling the manager to be successful. So that's kind of the, the, the overall goal. The ERTAP is, is what's happening beneath the surface. It's like that iceberg below the surface. It's the increased levels of empathy, respect, trust, and alignment that lead to partnership. The covenant, the exchange of obligations and expectations, the merging of those, the creation of documents with 10 promises to each other, or it doesn't have to be 10. It could be eight, it could be nine. There's nothing magic about 10. Um, and the signature that goes on that and the reference to it and the reviews of that, that's, that's kind of the tool that gets us to a heightened state of ERTAP and eventually meaningful partnership. But there's so much more in the book. The book not only gives how to, if you are interested in doing this yourself, it gives examples. There's four, I think, very interesting stories about real teams that we've worked with. Uh, One was a manager who was doing everything fantastic and he just wanted to go from fantastic to super fantastic. Uh, And by the way, a military guy, uh, ex-Air Force. So, um, you know, his reason for doing it was just continuous improvement. We have a, a nursing home manager who had silos, two real factions within his nursing home team. We had a woman director of, of sales, and um, she was largely okay with her team, but had conflicts with peers and her boss on uh, how the covenant kind of healed her team and, and healed her relationship with others and then finally a a government manager with a small but very diverse group of employees where there was differences of religion and age and race and nationality all within a group of about six people and there were just two two groups that were at each other the 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 young and the older uh, frankly the black and the white um, uh, the religious differences um, and this team was about to fly apart and start getting into lawsuits and uh, the work with them healed them. So it's really a story of healing. And um, the book gets into where this process doesn't work. We, we acknowledge it's not a panacea for all problems and all ills. Uh, there are certainly managers and teams for whom this is not a good fit. So we're candid and, and open about that. And then we conclude with uh, 10 kind of lessons, 10, uh, a top 10 list, if you will, of, of pithy conclusions. Um, some of which are, you know, you're, you're, the relationships on your team are probably not as good as you think they are. All relationships need to have healing because, you know, like, like the human body, they go through ups and downs and periods of low and high. And, and so relationships like the human body need times of healing. Um, so there are some very important insights and uh, leadership quotations, uh, what we call silver bullets that are through the book. So the the book I I've been told <laughs> is a quick read. I, I've been told if you're really keen, you can kind of get through it in about two hours. Um, and uh, you can skip over the research chapter. If you're not into research, you can skip over the how to chapter. If you're not going to do it yourself and just focus on the concepts and the advice. So yeah. there it is.
1: No, I, I love it. And I will agree. It's, it's a great read. Um, uh, I'm not sure what the final cut was, but probably somewhere around 140 pages or so.
0: Yeah, um, that would be correct. Actually, not including the appendix, the net number of pages is 158.
1: Nice. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it's a great read. Uh, I I like to talk about these books, uh, these types of books when I have them on here as, as kind of quick reference guides because of the size and the consumability. It's laid out very well. Uh, You can you can keep it handy by your desk and and just pop it open when you're having these issues and and go take a look and find yourself some quick reference help there. Uh, It's that type of book that you want to keep within arm's reach, Uh, especially when you're trying to do any type of partnership building. uh, You want this book handy. Um, and, And with that. You know, if folks want to find out more about uh, about you, more about Tim, uh, more about meaningful partnership at work, uh, what are some good places for them to go look?
0: Okay. So my website is silverconsultinginc.com. Again, silverconsultinginc.com. Uh, I am LinkedIn, uh, Dr. Seth R. Silver. Uh, Tim is also Timothy M. Franz. He's on LinkedIn. His uh, website is teambuildingprocess.com. Repeat, teambuildingprocess, one word. Dot com, and um, we would love for you to you know check out the book and as as you say you use it as a handy reference uh, use it as a, a set of inspirational quotes, um, and recognize that while we emphasize the team and manager relationship that is by far the the biggest lens through which we look at in the book we also have a chapter talking about where else partnership works and so there are team to team relationships that are important. And you can do a workplace covenant between two teams you can do it between two individuals you can do it between a nonprofit board and the executive team of the nonprofit. Um, there are a lot of different partnerships that exist in our workplace so it's not limited to just a manager and team. in fact we're going to be working with a government group in september where it's actually going to be one level of leadership to the next level down to frontline workers so there's you know five or six leaders I think there's two levels within that team, but for purposes of the covenant, we're going to have them as one team. So six people is the leadership team, and then we're going to have the other 38, you know, frontline people as the team, and it'll be a, you know, group-to-group covenant that's going to happen between those two parties. So a lot of different applications. Wherever partnership is important, wherever partnership is, is crucial to the success of your organization, this process works to enhance it. I love
1: it, and I would absolutely agree. Uh, well, Dr. Silver, this has been great. Uh, I think there's a lot that we could still talk about here. So, uh, you know, we might have to see if our schedules align maybe later in the year and, and have you back on the show for a follow-up discussion. Uh, maybe you and Tim, maybe we're trying to make that happen, but, that would, uh, be wonderful. That would be yeah, I, no, I, I, I'd love to speak with the both of you there. That'd be, that'd be outstanding. I might just shut up and let the two of you talk, Um, But, you know, I just want to take a second and say thank you very much for being a guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast, having this great conversation with me, uh, leaving all of this great knowledge with my listeners, giving them the tools necessary to succeed, uh, and just, you know, really driving home what Responsible Leadership is all about. Thank you for that.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at Earl at Leadership Phalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at Leadership P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode.
0: Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the want Bet podcast?
1: David, have you ever seen a grown man naked?
0: Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. ElectriCast. ElectriCast. Electric, acid. Electric, acid. Electric, acid. Electric, acid. Electric acid.